Oh, to bring in our first guest, Shift Gears, we want to talk commodities with Kurt Nelson, the founding partner and CEO of Summerhaven. Kurt, welcome. Good to have you with us. I want to begin with how well crude's higher this morning on the Saudi threat to cut output. Yeah, they've done a good job of maintaining price stability and, and supportive prices. Uh, you know, these higher prices are great for OPEC and for the member nations, it's been critical to Saudi Arabia, to their economy. Um, I think it was pretty scary when we saw oil prices for them uh, around you know $25, $35 a barrel. We've since recovered really well. So, you know, we're not we're not where the highs were, you know, north of 100, but uh, prices are still well supported here. They don't want to go back to 50, 60, 70 dollars a barrel oil. Um, and I think there's a number of geopolitical you know factors such as the uh, distancing of the global market from access to Russian oil. I think it's largely going to China right now, but it's not reaching global markets the way it normally would. And I think uh, you know OPEC is is playing their you know their hand. They're uh, supporting the, the current price level and, and hoping that it will continue. So playing their hand, I, they were referencing it more as talking their book earlier in the office as we were getting things ready for the show here. But uh, I do agree with you in terms of managing the situation fairly well. And they spoke to that point. Uh, Saudi Arabia's oil minister said that basically the extreme volatility, the liquidity or lack thereof meant that uh, ultimately future prices are increasingly disconnected from fundamentals and of course, and of course, force production cuts to stabilize volatile markets. So basically, again, I kind of think of it as talk in their book, but, uh, but to your point, uh, you know, they're handling the situation pretty well, it seems like. Yeah, I think they, you know, the, the worst situation for them would be a dramatic fall in prices that is hard for them to, to maintain their economy, um, which is kind of singularly focused around, you know, carbon-based fuel and particularly oil. And uh, they, they've had good cohesion with their group. You haven't seen a lot of cheating, a lot of breaks from the team. Um, uh, so I, I think that they're, I wouldn't think of it as a threat. I think that they say that they're largely supportive of these higher prices and, and want that to continue. If you recall, there was, when, when oil prices were north of 100, uh, the Biden administration went to Saudi Arabia and tried to convince them to increase output. And I think they had a polite meeting, but the answer was largely no. <laughs> um, and uh, so I think their, their cohesion and working together um, uh, among the OPEC countries, which are pretty diverse, uh, has supported this, these strong price levels and I think has support going forward. I'd agree. And uh, in addition to a worst case Putin scenario in terms of uh, shutting off some of those supplies, doesn't seem to come into fruition, which was back in March, one of the concerns we had, and we saw crude up around 130 and recently a, a lower high up around 123. But the most recent move, again, back down to 85, 87-ish uh, notable, as well as uh, as we currently wait uh, the open here, we're hanging out right at 91.50. Talk to me about natural gas, current above $10, 14-year high, tied to, while well, speaking of Russia, these Nord Stream, uh, the Nord Stream 1 uh, uh, pipeline and the shutdown expected, I think, August 31st through September 2nd, is it? That's right. And, you know, I think the, the message from Russia is that the, this is uh, a consequence of their um, lack of access to the global supply chain for parts, for turbines, for, you know, machinery that they need to maintain Nord Stream 1. <clears throat> but I think um, everyone, uh, you know, whether you're, you're domestic or European, has some skepticism when Russia says, oh, we need to shut off Nord Stream uh, for, for maintenance. It could very well be uh, political pressure on Europe, which mm -hmm. has been clearly aligned with Ukraine. I think natural gas at these prices right now is really unusual for a couple of reasons. Well, number one, as you said, Ben, we haven't seen these kind of prices in natural gas since 2008. Yeah. 
Um, we had a couple real steep price spikes in gas in, in 05 and in 08, um, generally kind of late spring coming out of the winter um, and into the injection period. And they came off quite a, you know, pretty steeply after that. Uh, this is unusual that it's been rallying all the way through this injection period through the summer. We've seen no signs of weakness. And um, you know, and we're just now coming into the interesting period, which is hurricane season, and then the you know the winter period when we're generally burning off inventories uh, for the heating season in North America. So I think the fact that we're up around almost ten dollars um, in gas right now is is highly significant. The pressures out of out of Europe are are, are significant. Um, you know, Europe relies on natural gas in a, in a huge way. Germany and other uh, Northern European countries to heat their homes in the winter. They don't have a lot of you know Plan Bs. Um, they're trying to put those in place prior to the winter. You've seen an expansion of of um, inventories of coal, restarting some coal-fired plants, even consumers buying uh, wood. Mm-hmm. It's just as a backup mm-hmm. plan. Um, and uh, and I don't see you know we're, we're six months now into the Ukraine-Russian war. I think everyone thought it would last a week, um, and it doesn't seem. Uh, to be showing any signs of letting up. In fact, Ukraine's even being more aggressive in some of their countermeasures, counterattacks. And uh, I think that, that this is going to be a very interesting dynamic. So with these, the prices in the U.S. are very high, but the prices in Europe are even higher for natural gas. And now with liquid natural gas terminals, we're able to export uh, and, and provide supplies to uh, a, a region that's experiencing you know, difficult scarcity in a way that we couldn't a decade ago. But that means less gas here. Um, so if, if we had abundant supplies in the U.S. through tight gas and, and domestic production, we're actually exporting that rational thing to do because the prices in Europe are so high. It just means less gas here, which I think is supportive for Henry Hub Nat gas going into the winter. Well, there's some debate in terms of Europe's ability to store and their infrastructure uh, in order to uh, keep up with some of the uh, imports and some of our exports ultimately. But I like that you bring the seasonal aspect in that in as well, because I've been keeping a close eye on the builds and they've been tapering off uh, as we head into the fall ultimately. But, uh, uh, um, you know, I want to shift gears away from natural gas and the energy market to talk a little bit more about what we've been seeing um, ultimately, in terms of, uh, well, some of the metals, for example. I mean, obviously, you have uh, gold, which has been comfortable around the 1750 level. It seems clearly tied to rates, the U.S. dollar right now. Uh, copper, though, I mean, all of this kind of ties into silver, for example, coming off um, uh, recently. I mean, all of this kind of ties into the inflation discussion. And I guess uh, that being the case, with crude sort of a focal point, obviously, uh, energy price is a major concern, not only here in the U.S., but globally. In terms of the Fed, when they look at these prices at current levels, I mean, are they getting what they need to see in terms of easing uh, some of the uh, rate hikes? Ultimately, it seems like prices have come off to where we can have that argument. We're no longer at peak levels, but still not necessarily coming off to where uh, the Fed can sort of back off of uh, the initiatives. Sure. I mean, a few points I'd like to make, Ben. One would be, I think gold has been range bound. Um, we haven't seen uh, gold kind of break out of this roughly $1,800 per ounce price for some time. And I think that it's got uh, a headwind of higher interest rates that as a, as a financial asset, you know, you don't earn any interest on your gold, you pay for storage and uh, interest rates uh, coming off of zero and going to two, three, four percent. Um, if, if that's the case where the where rates eventually end up, you know, the opportunity cost of holding gold goes up. I think gold 
uh, and to some degree silver will really come back into play if we see financial market weakness. I think it's a, it's a touchstone for investors when, uh, when stocks uh, tend to sell off that gold is a safe haven. And I think that that, that probably will, will be the next time we see gold break out of its range. Um, more broadly, I would say on inflation, um, you know, the things that the Fed can do are very powerful, but very limited. I mean, really, they can hike interest rates. That's, that's one of the key things they can do to try to fight inflation. But when you think about um, the war in Ukraine, the high cost of fertilizer because of our global dependency on that region to produce it, the global um, climate change problems affecting water supply and heat that are diminishing crop yields, making things a challenge for farmers across the world, um, high labor costs, a tight labor market, and then maybe most importantly, really high real estate prices. <clears throat> I, you know, I'd remind you and, and our listeners that uh, CPI, uh, is, the, the, the basic CPI is about 30% um, rent and rent equivalents. And core CPI, which is maybe even more important to the Fed, is like 40% rent equivalents. It doesn't include actual house prices in the calculation of CPI. And we know that there's this lag um, in the way the Bureau of Labor Statistics incorporates rent equivalents when real estate prices have gone up a lot. So the, the prices that we saw in Case-Shiller and other indexes um, hitting incredible year-over-year -year rises in the last 12 months, those are just now starting to cycle into actual CPI. Mm. So I think that um, the Fed is, is, is slow walking their, their rate hikes. It might seem or feel, because we haven't had them for a long time, that these, these are steep. 75 basis points, you know, uh, hike in a meeting is no joke. But we're still re really behind inflation. I think inflation has maybe come off of its, its recent peak of 9%, still in, in around the 8% range. Um, we'll see where the next month's CPI comes out. But the the rule of thumb by most major economists is that the, the Fed has to take interest rates to about one and a half times, um, you know, a, a steady state inflation rate to bring it down. So even if we're, um, even if we see inflation settle out around five, six percent, you know, lower than where we are right now, but sort of stabilize in a high range, but lower than where we are, you still need to have the Fed take interest rates to 7 8% to really have an impact on bringing it down. We're so far away from that. So I think the ability for the Fed to start to even think about easing is, is, is really distant um, because they're taking a very deliberate and I think sober approach to hiking rates and not trying to tip the apple cart, trying to have a soft landing. I think that means that they have to keep raising for longer. Noted, uh, Kurt, to that point, uh, uh, Bullard yesterday kind of spoke to the restrictive nature that we need to be in uh, rather than where we are right now, kind of talking about needing to accelerate our uh, rates uh, initiatives ultimately. And, you know, it sounds like to your point there as well, maybe uh, we shouldn't get excited about corn coming off the $14 or wheat coming off $14 a bushel ultimately to the $7, $8 level. Uh, it's not as big of a factor as one thinks ultimately in the bigger picture here. Uh, there's lots of factors to consider. Kurt, appreciate you joining us here. Always good to have you with us here on the Future Show. And thanks for sharing your morning with us here on the TD Ameritrade Network. Kurt Nelson, the founding partner and CEO of Summerhaven.